When I joined Stripe six years ago, we only had account executives. And at first I was just blown away. I was like, we sell an API. How is it possible that we don't have any technical sales resources? And the reality was at that particular moment, we didn't need them because we were typically selling to a Series A or Series B company and we had some of the best documentation on the planet. And so basically the customer was their own SA. And then as we started moving up into like a Series C or D tech company, you were always going to switch them off of something else. And so now you really needed that solution architect to give you confidence that if you made this decision, you could in fact make the switch. And that was when we brought in your implementation consultants. So basically like every year as we've moved up market, we've had to add a somewhat more specialized role to sort of deal with a different stage of the customer life cycle. Welcome to In Depth a new show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, their companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. Through over 400 interviews on The Review, we've shared standout company building advice, the kind that comes from those willing to skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. With our new podcast, In-Depth, you can listen in to these deeper conversations every single week. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I'm thrilled to be joined by Gene DeWitt Grosser. Gene is the head of America's revenue and growth for Stripe, where she's responsible for all sales functions and leads the company's enterprise strategy. She joined Stripe after a career in sales at Google and also serving as Dialpad's chief revenue officer. In today's conversation, we dive super deep into all things pricing. To start, Gene outlines the trade-offs when it comes to usage-based pricing versus SaaS pricing and how usage-based pricing gets your company more closely aligned with the customer. She also debates the merits of hybrid or tiered pricing that Stripe has implemented and provides tips for other companies looking to go this route. Next, she explains her philosophy of treating pricing like a product and how this shows up in Stripe's org design. Jean outlines some of the pricing experiments that have had the biggest impact on how the company does business and her tips for getting a steady drumbeat of customer feedback. To wrap up, she shares her advice for founders when it comes to treating pricing as an art and a science. If you're in sales or a founder just starting to think about pricing your product, you don't want to miss Jean's insights she's picked up over the course of her career. She's got plenty of ideas for small startups and larger companies alike. What I particularly loved about our discussion is how many specific examples Jean provided to illustrate her playbook in action. I hope you enjoyed this episode and now my conversation with Jean. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could start the conversation at a high level talking about some of the benefits and or trade-offs of usage-based pricing. And what's really interesting is across your career, you've dealt with more traditional SaaS business models and pricing, and then obviously have this incredible set of experiences at Stripe building much more of a usage-based pricing business. When you zoom all the way out, how do you think about the positives and negatives of usage-based pricing? On the positives front, 
it drives strong alignment between a customer getting value and your company getting paid. So it's very purist in that way. But what that means is like you actually really have to have your customer be successful if you're going to continue to drive usage. So some of the things that have been really different as we add Valorum or usage-based pricing is in particular, thinking about your plan for implementation and customer success. In Stripe's case in particular, which is, is probably an extreme example, we truly don't make money until the customer is making money on Stripe because we're taking a percentage of the revenue that runs across our rails. For us, as an extreme example, when you sign a contract, we call that moment in Salesforce deal signed, which is different than any other company on the planet. It's not closed one. It's deal signed because that's all it is, a piece of paper. It's not even really a booking event. And so time to value is key. How quickly can you deploy? How quickly can you get from live usage to fully ramped? And so I think folks can underestimate that implementation and success piece in a usage-based model. The other thing that I think sometimes happens is that you frequently don't have commitments at the outset. So I think with tech companies, there tends to be this sort of purist approach to pricing often. I remember when I was at Google, Dave Girard, the founder of Upstart, had this whole pricing thing. It was called the decoder ring, where you really didn't want to have opaque pricing. We wanted to have clear, transparent pricing, and we wanted to earn people's business every day. And that's really frequently true in usage-based models, is basically people will just let you sign up and let you pay as you go consume. But what that means is you, in the long run, don't get predictability. And then you do also open yourself up for churn, If you think that you're earning somebody's business every day, but maybe because you're scaling really quickly, you aren't necessarily talking to everybody all the time. If you were talking to a founder and you were studying their business and you were trying to advise them, let's say they're more of a traditional SaaS-based business today, how should they think about if they might be a great candidate to try to pivot their business from SaaS to usage? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, basically, it's sort of like, where does the customer get value and how does that value scale? So a lot of SaaS models are license-based because the value is derived at a per seat or a per human level, and it scales with the number of humans using the product. So then the question becomes, as you're adding functionality to that maybe SaaS-based license, is all of that functionality still tied to the human using it, or is some of the functionality actually scaling with the outcome you might be driving? You'd have examples of this in a lot of products, like maybe certain marketing products where there's a seat-based fee in general, but then there might be a usage or a consumption-based fee with the number of emails you're sending or SMSs you're sending. So it's both kind of about the operator as well as the end delivery. So that's probably what I would focus on is who's getting value and how does that value scale? How do you think about the opportunity for that hybrid business model that you're talking about? And do you think ultimately that's sort of a bit have your cake and eat it too, and more and more of the ecosystem is going to move to SaaS plus usage? Or do you think there's just going to be splintering and companies are going to be doing all sorts of different things over the next few years? I think my assumption would be it'll be all sorts of things, but that doesn't make it easy. So let me give you a good example of this one. So Stripe Payments, one of your more pure usage-based pricing models, we launched Stripe Billing. So it's a subscription engine. So again, sort of the value you're delivering broadly scales with the transactions running across the engine. So we priced that way, basis points on transaction volume. 
And it's actually not how the bulk of the market prices. They tend to price it more in an annual subscription where you might run a certain amount of volume through the engine and then you've got some overages. And so that's been really challenging for us because you've got one core model that you're really used to. And so it's easy for you to conceptually layer other things on in that, in our case, usage-based capacity. And it's been hard for us to then think about actually how do you move this product potentially to more of a license-based model or or more of a, a core subscription and then talk about the two things at the same time. So if you're trying to sell two products simultaneously that have fundamentally different commercial models... It can also be an awkward conversation from a sale perspective. So I would say for us and getting that right, we could certainly benefit from putting more enablement behind that, thinking a lot more about how you present the different pricing models. It's not super natural, I would say. And so in that case, the biggest challenge was that the customer was trained to be buying something that was non-usage priced. And in your case, you were trying to bring something that was usage priced out of the gate or... Was it sort of this hybrid model of where you're trying to do both at the same time? It was more the latter. And so what would end up happening is we weren't necessarily the market maker at that point. So I think that's the other thing startups have to think through is if you're going to do something differently, either your product has to be 10x better so that no one's really debating whether or not there's a relative comparison, or you've got to know that if your product has a comp in the market and the market broadly prices fundamentally differently, you're probably going to wind up having to reverse engineer your pricing model into the existing construct. And this you know, is mostly when you're starting to get into like a mid-market enterprise type deal where you've got finance organizations, procurement departments, and they've got to do a side-by-side financial comparison. So I think that's like the other thing to consider is if you're going to be really different Are you basically going to wind up having to just re-explain yourself in somebody else's terms? And so you talked a little bit about this, but how did you solve that problem or are attempting to solve that problem in the case of Stripe billing? Yeah, so we're attempting to solve it now. And basically, I think what we figured out is the usage-based model, and this is actually often true, I would say, of usage-based models in general, scales well for companies that are smaller and growing. And then it reaches a point at which companies really want predictability. And then we are actively changing our model there to be more of a SaaS one. So if I'm selling into a high growth Series B company, I'll probably price payments and billing the same way. And that just sort of scales. But if I'm going to go sell into a public software company, they really want cost predictability. And so payments, we still are sort of figuring out how do you get that on a committed contract. But for billing, we've increasingly been able to see actually folks want to do a five-year committed revenue, know their annual spend for half a decade going into the future, which isn't necessarily a bad thing for Stripe either. So we're just working through the mechanics on how do you bill for that? How do you present that side-by-side with payments, which is priced differently, and have it all land and come together? When you talk about what does the customer want, you sort of mentioned, obviously, the benefit of usage-based is that you better align the value you're creating with the value you're capturing. Is the number one reason that customers don't like it or have an issue with it is the predictability issue? I think that's one of them. The other big one is, obviously, if you scale a lot, you pay a lot more money. And so then you have to get into smart volume-based discounts, basically. So companies are happy to pay you more over time because you're adding more value. 
but they tend to want the per unit cost to go down because they also have their own unit economics to think about and present. So then you need to get really smart about your discount curves and things like, do you do progressive pricing where like sort of like the tax, like taxes, but, you know, so you don't have big drop-offs as somebody goes from a million transactions to a million and one transactions and maybe kicks into the next bucket in a a volume-based discount scheme. On that point, where do you advise companies, sales teams, product leaders start as they're building their first usage-based pricing plan? Because you just sort of hinted at one of the dozens of things that you have to consider. And it seems like things can get mind-bendingly complicated. And things can get, I think, quite custom and bespoke, which is one of the inverse pieces of what's nice about usage-based pricing, because ideally it should be simple and elegant. But it sounds like it can get exceptionally complicated exceptionally quickly. And so do you have a starting point or way that you would frame or educate a founder on how to get going, thinking about the early days of their usage-based pricing model? As far as where you get started, outline what are the different things in your product that are the value levers. So let me give another example here. Stripe's Connect product. So a lot of marketplaces or software platforms use this to do complex money movement. And it has value in a a number of places. It has value in your ability to onboard a Lyft driver, as an example, and make sure they're sound as far as being part of the financial network. It has value in letting you move money around. It has value in letting you pay out that Lyft driver. So we actually wound up pricing it on those three different things so that it's sort of more straightforward with how you would explain why you're pricing something to a customer. I think that's one is sort of understanding what are the drivers of value for your customer and then how do those drivers scale over time? Are they linear with the product or not? And then I think like all founders, you got to kind of put something out there that's your best educated guess. But then I think people increasingly need to be treating pricing like a product and have a built-in plan for how are you going to get feedback on your pricing construct, just like you did on your core product. And how are you going to iterate on that rapidly? We've had all sorts of examples where we've launched a product at Stripe and figured out that we got either the core pricing construct wrong or similar to where you launch a product and all of a sudden you figure out there's an an entire segment of the market that you didn't realize was interesting and is loving your product. We've seen that too, where the pricing works for 80% of the market, but there's this other area we didn't contemplate and actually it needs a different approach. There are a bunch of ways in which we've been slow to iterate in places that would have been better for our customers and also, I think, driven more revenue for Stripe. If we'd had sort of that dedicated team earlier on, in figuring out how do you adjust your pricing based on all the reactions you're getting in the market. So on that point of treating pricing like a product, can you sort of explain that in a little bit more detail? Or if you are treating pricing like a product, what are you doing or what does that look like? Yeah, so we now have a cross-functional team focused on pricing for quite a few of our products. We ultimately wound up with a pricing team, but early on, it was just a member of the finance organization. You've got folks from product marketing, folks from product, and folks from sales. And so sales often will get a ton of feedback when you're trying to go and win these first deals, or you, you know, it works for the first deals, and then the next 100, all of a sudden, you get other gotchas out there. So we'll bring those back as far as like you get in competitive situations and the competitor is is offering this sort of package or discount or, or whatever. And we'll bring those together 
and then increasingly have set up our internal billing platform to be extensible to other product organizations so that they can play with it as if it, frankly, were a product and be able to do more pricing experiments. Similarly, we do a fair amount in thinking through the way that you bundle or test different strategies like freemium. And so have a team that will put those proposals together. We often test them actually with the sales organization. So we'll package them up as if they were the way the product was priced and make it work on the back end. And if it's really resonating, then we sort of productize that pricing construct. So try to do a bunch of things that let you iterate more quickly. When you're testing, let's say, a new model or a tweak to how you're doing pricing today, how do you bring that to potential customers? I guess is sort of one question. The other would be, how do you know if your pricing is working or is effective or could be improved? At Stripe, actually, so it's relevant for early startup founders. In my sales organization, I have an incubation team because Stripe, you know, we've got a payments product, very large product that hundreds of people sell, but we're bringing new products to market frequently. And so we have an incubation team that's not that different from an early startup sales team. There are three people on it. (laughs) And so honestly, like you get pretty quick pattern recognition as you go out and pitch these as far as the questions that get asked, where you get objections. So it's not really different from any other startup out there. It's just the fact that you are very thoughtful around realizing that pricing is really a part of the product. And so we review it with the same level of attention that we do. Hey, you know, we need this feature over here. This button should be blue, not red. Those parts of it. I guess on that point, how do you balance kind of what you hear from customers like, well, I'd like more predictability or I don't like this relative to sort of what you're trying to do as an institution, which to a certain extent is maximizing the amount of value you can capture or balancing it in some way? Yeah. So we learned a lot on this one as well, I would say. And there's a certain point at which the market actually has, I think, a relatively strong ability to dictate where you land on this front, unless you are truly doing something that is, there's no comp for it and or you are 10x better. So we, as an example, Stripe on Payments has historically priced at a relative premium. The thinking there was, we're this tech-forward API. You can build things much more quickly. Our time to value is fundamentally different than other solutions in the market, and therefore you should pay something for that. When we first got into enterprise sales back in 2017, 2018, we got feedback again and again and again that the pricing you're coming in is like, quote-unquote, shock and awe tactics. And we tried it (laughs) again and again and again because we felt, hey, there's a real value we're providing here from a technology perspective. And when you have eight of those deals where you've truly gotten a technical win, you've been told, assuming we can come to an agreement on price, you are the product I want to move forward with. And then you don't get eight of those deals across the line, then you know you have a pricing problem. To your question, Brett, the thing from a sales process that folks can do well is get to that statement where the customer has said to you, assuming we can come to agreeable commercial terms, you are the product of choice or the solution of choice. Then if you don't end up closing the bulk of those that wound up with that statement, you probably have a pricing problem. 
building on this point of the intersection of usage-based pricing and sales and or kind of the different pieces of go-to-market, I was hoping we could spend some time talking about maybe in what ways the go-to-market function looks similar to selling more traditional SaaS and maybe in what ways is it different or what do you have to do to set up a go-to-market function to be successful when you're building a usage-based pricing business model? Broadly, you wind up with the same functions is my experience. It's just sort of like the relative emphasis of them. So a good example would go back to kind of earlier in the conversation, implementation and customer success. It's not that SaaS companies or, or license-based companies don't have those functions. They, they certainly do. For usage-based ones, I just think they're that much more important and earlier in the cycle. I've had a, a lot of conversations actually with, with other founders around this. The intersection of sales and customer success, they just wind up being that much closer and you've got to figure out where one stops and the other ends. Like a traditional SaaS model is typically the salesperson is responsible for getting the contract signed, sort of getting to that closed one state and having the booking event. In usage-based models, there may not really be a booking. And so then the question becomes, is the sales rep responsible past that? So at Stripe, as an example, we came up with this concept, we call it first year sold, which is basically the revenue a customer brings in the first 365 days after they have activated. And we have a a definition of, of active. And we disproportionately target and pay the salespeople on that rather than on getting that contract signed because we believe that aligns the customer's success with rep incentives and ensures that you've done a really robust sales process. And so when you sign something, the customer is in fact ready to deploy, likely to deploy, will ramp and be successful. I think that's a big one is just how important the implementation piece is because you often don't pay at all until you actually are live. And then I do think sales targets, compensation, et cetera, can be quite different as well. On sort of this emphasis on implementation and customer success, could you maybe talk in a little bit more detail how you've set up Stripe given how important implementation and customer success is and maybe some of the tricky things that you've had to figure out as as you just mentioned, the balance between customer success or sales or who owns what at what point in time? Great question. So how our org is set up is you've got your account executive. In the US, actually, we also bifurcate our account executives into greenfield account executives. So folks who are pursuing net new customers who don't work with Stripe and install-based account executives who are managing that now growing customer and then expanding as they move into different markets or have something else that they might buy from Stripe. The AE pairs closely with a solution architect. We sell a pretty complicated API. We have deeply technical essays. Most of them, all of them, I think, have CS degrees. Depending on the segment you're in, you'll have a different type of ratio. If you're in the startup segment, you tend to have the decision maker might also be the one writing the code. So less need to have an essay. But in enterprise space, you might have a one-to-one of an AE to an essay. So their job, their primary job is to get the customer to pick Stripe and to get the contract executed. But like I mentioned, they don't get to roll off after that happens. They actually own the customer for the next 365 days, or actually arguably more than that, because it's during the implementation and then for the next 365 days. We've got two roles, an integration engineer and an implementation consultant. 
An integration engineer is similarly very technical resource that helps with scoping the integration, works very closely with engineers at a customer. Implementation consultant will do some overall project management as well as a lot of change management for various functional teams. So their core job is to go from signed deal to live and ramping. And then once you exit that 365, you flip over into an install base AE and customer success. So a big debate that we've had and actually that we're in the process of changing is the handoff between the SA and the IE or the implementation teams. So no one's ever swimming in resources. So an example is you ideally want the IE and the implementation team to come in as early as humanly possible because as soon as the deal is scoped and the customer is writing code, you're shrinking the amount of time to going live. But if you bring them in too early, it's possible we may ultimately lose the deal. And now you've used their time ineffectively that could have been on another account. So we used to have the solution architects take things all the way up through a signed deal and not bring in our IEs and ICs until after the fact. And now actually we've pulled that forward where we have a well-defined technical win. And when the technical win has been achieved, we'll start to pull in implementation while the account executive is doing the commercial agreement. So that's been one of the things we like debated over the years and have changed as we've matured. There's been others on CSM as well. You know, when do you bring them in? Sometimes we actually bring them in right after you sign if it's like a massive, massive $10 million plus deal. But those are all the life cycle debates we have. (laughs) To loop back to one of the ideas that you shared, the idea of a greenfield account exec and an install base account exec, are the skill set of those people similar or different from each other? They're actually quite similar. It's more just they're both really good athletes. One's just great at playing baseball and the other's great at playing basketball. You tend to sell slightly different things. It's a Venn diagram, but like a greenfield rep is always going to be a competitive sale. We operate in a really competitive market and it will always be at least a payment sale. Ideally, you're selling other things that Stripe has, but you will always have to sell payments. Install base, you sold payments. And so you're disproportionately selling Stripe billing or radar, you know, a different product of ours. So you sort of major and minor on different product lines. You do own a renewal motion, which can also be very competitive, but the content and positioning of it tends to be a little bit different. So we have people move from one team to the other. I basically said, like, I don't have hunters and farmers. They're all hunters. They're just hunting in a different place in the life cycle. So at what point does an account get handed over from a Greenfield account exec to an install base account exec? Yeah. So this is another one that I think we'll continue to iterate on. So today it gets handed over more or less. You sort of try to line things up with different quarter annual marks, but more or less after 365 days. There are some exceptions to that. So in accounts like very large ones where you are unlikely to have gotten a very large portion of that company's total share of wallet in the original Greenfield sale, they'll stay with the Greenfield AE because the value of that relationship is high. And when you're in sort of like lower tiers, slightly smaller customers, often that initial sale, you got the bulk of what you were going for. So we'll do that transition. But we've debated, do you pull the install base person forward or do you do more of the lifecycle model? So we're experimenting more with the lifecycle model in Europe and APAC where the teams don't have the same amount of scale to have these clearly segmented teams. And ultimately, we'll see which ones produce the most productive account executives and happy customers. What is the role of the CSM versus the install base account exec? 
So we only have CSMs in large accounts, ones that are maybe spending on the order of a million dollars or more. Um, And so in those cases, there's a lot of work to be done to really optimize the account to ensure that they're getting as much value as they could out of Stripe. Stripe's very interesting, right, in that we're an API, you've got a tech company, but you also sit in this legacy financial industry. And so the intersection of those two things is somewhat unique. So CSMs, as an example, might help you with payments optimization, which is basically figuring out, are you doing everything possible so that when you use our API to submit a transaction to Stripe, you're getting the lowest possible underlying price, which isn't actually from Stripe. It's from the card networks like a Visa. There's a lot of optimization work to be done around that. You know, a lot of the companies Stripe is working with either they're high growth companies, so they're launching new business lines or they're moving to international markets or in the enterprise space, maybe you won with an initial line of business, you're going into others. And so there's a fair amount of ongoing change management work to do as as new products or new people come on board. They're basically really about helping the customer realize as much value as possible from what they've bought. Whereas the AE is more commercially oriented. So find the next thing you should buy and then make sure we retain you on the things you have bought. And are those two roles working in concert in some way? Or how do you create alignment so you have a great experience on the end of the customer? Yeah, they work as an account team. So basically for the accounts that have a CSM, it's a three-person pod of an AE, an SA, and a CSM. And they work together as a unit. So they'll do account planning together. All the QBRs, internal and external, happen together. They often have their own customer-based Slack channel. They have ways in which there are certain roles within an account one might own more so than another. So it's not like they take every single customer-facing meeting together, but they're all going to be talking to each other every single day about the account. And you mentioned this a minute ago, but in what ways does the go-to-market function in both pre-sale and post-sale change as you move up into the enterprise and out of the mid-market or the startup segment? Often just the addition of more roles and then the deeper specialization of those. So to give you a sense for this, when I joined Stripe six years ago, we only had account executives. That was the only role that we had. And I, at first I was just blown away. I was like, we sell an API. How is it possible that we don't have any technical sales resources? And the reality was at that particular moment, we didn't need them because we were typically selling to a Series A or Series B company, and we had some of the best documentation on the planet. And so basically, the customer was their own SA. (laughs) And like, we could have hired out an SA team. I'm sure it would have added value, but like, you actually didn't need to. And then as we started moving up into like a Series C, Series D tech company, you were always going to switch them off of something else. Because if you have gotten to that level of funding, you probably are making money. And so you've been doing that on somebody else's platform. And so now you really needed that solution architect to give you confidence that if you made this decision, you could in fact make the switch. And then we started seeing that we would get people to that yes, but they were taking longer and longer and longer to deploy. And we figured out that Stripe's documentation is amazing for a startup, but less so when, again, you're sort of re-architecting something. And that was when we brought in your implementation consultants. So basically, every year as we've moved up market, we've had to add a somewhat more specialized role to sort of deal with a different 
stage of the customer life cycle. The other thing I'd highlight on that too is as you get into bigger and bigger companies, part of the reason you need these specialized roles on your end is because they have those at their company. So you might sell to say six people during the sales process and not one of them is part of the, okay, we signed the thing to going live process. So you sort of have to relationship map effectively. And then more recently, and other companies get into this at various stages, as we've gotten very deeply into more traditional enterprise, we now are building up an entire ecosystem around Stripe of systems integrators, dev agencies, all sorts of partners that can do hands-on keyboard, something you would never need when you're selling to a Series A company. So you got to figure out what it is that your customers need to be successful and make decisions and then map to that. Why do you think it's always trickier than most people would imagine to go up market? I think, one, because tech companies move quickly, we like to think that the world will change. (laughs) But a lot of enterprises don't move at that rate. And so even though we may not need to be sold to in the way enterprises ultimately are, they still do. So I think there's a little bit of like cognitive dissonance between technology-driven companies who are like, well, I don't buy this way. I don't need all this overhead, what's actually required, and frankly, what your incumbent competitors are willing to do. The number of times I have heard (laughs) stories where the like payments rep at XYZ legacy provider goes to the birthday party of the son of the head of payments of this enterprise. Like I literally have heard that story more than once. And I wouldn't say Stripe for many years was set up such that you would have that depth of relationship. That person has probably been working on that enterprise account uninterrupted for a decade. (laughs) So I think there's that part. I think the other part that companies struggle with when they move up market is there's different unit economics associated with it. And often, you know, your CAC looks bad until the LTV part of the equation starts to materialize. And so you sort of have to have the stomach for, I might not like the shape of this for two years, but as long as all of the leading indicators are in line with sort of the operating model we built, then I can stick with it to have the revenue and that that long-term value come out the other end. You mentioned this a little bit at the start of the conversation, but are there other traps or issues that you see specifically moving up market with a usage-based model and maybe some of the experiments or things that you've changed that have unlocked a lot of value for you all? I think for us, like the biggest one I've seen is actually lack of sophisticated pricing models and not having committed contracts that are predictable. So the downsides of that have been, one, that's often how CIOs will want to buy. They know what their budget is. They want to feel confident that you'll fit in it. But two, large companies almost always have a procurement department. And so if you don't have a locked-in contract, they will audit things on a regular basis and figure out where are the places I could potentially go in and try to eke out the next dollar. So there have been good examples of companies that were happy with us. They literally would look you in the face on Monday and say, we love Stripe. You're the best thing since sliced bread. And then on Tuesday, stick their procurement person in front of you to say, hey, I want to renegotiate this. And I've gone out to market and I have three competitive bids. I think just doing more to get folks in a multi-year committed state so you can focus on value realization and expansion 
rather than having to necessarily go back and revisit what you'd sold. And so that means that when you move up market, you try to create that tiered pricing that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we'll have tiered pricing, multi-year agreement. There's different ways to do things, but typically what we're trying to do now more is committed revenue. You will spend X million dollars with Stripe on a five-year basis across these product lines. I think that's the other thing too that we definitely got wrong was, so startups don't love multi-year agreements because you have extreme anxiety about your own growth. You don't want to say yes to something and then all of a sudden 10x your revenue and be locked into a bad contract. Enterprises are almost the opposite. And so I think we often found we weren't asking for enough. And while a startup, you sort of have to cajole into a two-year agreement frequently, an enterprise often was quite willing to do a five-year agreement. And so, you know, if you can do that, that's a huge efficiency gain to not have to talk about your core commercials on your core product for half a decade while you go figure out what else you could possibly do to grow the account. We talked a little bit about sales comp and planning thus far, but I'm curious when you think about your own planning process at Stripe and the way in which you both approach planning, set goals for the sales team, and then how compensation philosophy sort of flows from that. How does that all fit together for you in this pricing-based model? And is it quite different from more traditional SaaS-based model? So far, my experience at Stripe has been is very different. And I have talked to all sorts of consumption-based companies, and I am yet to find the consistent answer that's working for everybody. It does seem like increasingly companies are trying to get usage-based models to do kind of what I've been talking about, which is make them get to the same level of predictability that you've historically had with SaaS with these commitments. But I truly have not heard of anyone feeling like they've perfectly cracked the code on this. So if anyone has, feel free to ping me and let me know. For us, planning, it's it's complicated. So you've got your install base, which is reasonably predictable. We've got all sorts of data scientists who work on this. What's interesting is like you're effectively trying to develop, if Instacart's your customer, a revenue forecast for Instacart when you aren't their CFO, your Stripe's data scientist. But obviously, if you aggregate millions of customers together, you can get that a little bit more accurately. So we sort of forecast the install base piece. We then, for the top couple hundred customers, do a sales overlay of that. So below that, you'll probably be right on average, but wrong on any one account. And it it all averages out. It's fine. But when you're talking about the annual revenue forecast for an Instacart or DoorDash or a Amazon, there's more that you can layer in. So we'll talk with the sales, with the account executive to just learn what else might be going on in the account. We obviously look at whether or not that account will have a renewal event within the year. And then we have targets for where we'd want that to land, but we'll also overlay our point of view on how well we're positioned there, what competitive dynamic is likely to be. So that's sort of the approach to the install base. Before you flip over, I'm curious, how do you, if in any way, you know, you mentioned, you know, you're trying to predict your business, which is basically a bottoms up buildup of all of your customers' businesses. I guess you kind of have this interesting dynamic, particularly because it's usage based, where if you look at the earlier days of Stripe, you get a company that's 20 people. In two years, it could be 3000 people. And you get this amazing rake style dynamic that you were talking about where you align value creation and value capture. But does that create peculiarities in the way that you try to predict your own business? 
and maybe think about the core health of the business in the sense that maybe an AE landed some company that was seven people. And because you went so deep in the startup and mid-market segment, they could be growing at this astonishing clip and become this enormous customer of yours and maybe mask other issues that are happening because you have this little bit of a power law, which maybe is different than other SaaS products. Yes, we pay close attention to this. So Stripe looks really closely overall at cohort growth because we do have that dynamic. We also lean into precisely what you've just said, which I think Stripe was pretty smart and figured out early on that when you get Shopify as a customer as a Series A company and they do what they've now done, that ends up being very good. (laughs) And so we very proactively pursue all funded startups on the planet. We don't think about those in terms of year one revenue by any means. It's That's all an averaged out portfolio theory, lifetime value equation. I literally have a whole team of account executives who I talk to as if they were VCs. (laughs) I'm like, your job is basically to go get as much of the funded startups out there onto our platform that are more likely to become the next Shopify or Instacart. And that's what they do. So what we do is we look very closely at the dynamics of when a customer joined Stripe, what were they? So how big were they? How old were they? Understanding what industry they're in. And so we have like a really interesting graph, for example, at Stripe, which shows their segmentation when they joined Stripe. So was it a Series A startup, a later stage business, a traditional enterprise? And then what is their state today? So a lot of those started as a startup. They're now public digital native companies. And it's quite interesting. (laughs) to see where Stripe's revenue came from. So yeah, we like we basically peel back the onion in a lot of detail so you don't have those blind spots. So that's kind of the existing customer piece and you're about to flip over to net new business. The thing that's interesting about that is basically, unless we're talking about a startup, a lot of the revenue you'll get from net new is actually from work you did last year because last year you did the work to do the sales process and to sign them. And then they probably spent some part of last year implementing. And now this year, they're going live. So actually, on January 1st, I can typically forecast not 100% of my net new revenue, but a significant chunk of it. And so the plan for, say, 2022 is realizing all of the revenue that I signed last year And then you have a a more traditional plan, basically, which is the deals I will sign this year to basically cover my 2023 number. And for those, we've effectively just built ramp curves. But what's interesting relative to a SaaS company is you wind up with two ramp curves. So at a SaaS company, the only ramp curve is to getting to that booking event. For us, there's a ramp curve to productivity on the deal signed. And then there's another ramp curve to productivity on that first year sold realized revenue. And so we we do those and we'll tweak them each year based on us doing deeper segmentation, moving into different markets. And so when you do that, the ramp curve is typically a mix of historically observed productivity with a point of view on what we think productivity ought to be given the strategy and the supporting plan. How do you think about the revenue mix that you want in any given year and how that maps to staffing and org design in the sense of, do you want to go deeper in the mid-market? Do you want to have some percentage of revenue coming from the Fortune 2000 next year? How does that fit together? 
now that Stripe really plays across the board, we're in global 100 accounts as well as obviously a lot of startups. We're trying to figure this out because for us, it's almost always the case that the accounts that are potentially the most interesting on a three or five year time horizon are the least interesting in the first year. So to make that tangible, your Series A startup may only do $5 million in their revenue. And you know we're taking a part of that in year one. But again, if you pick Shopify by year three or year five, that account could be 10,000x bigger. Similarly, when you go into traditional enterprise, you might sign a massive deal, but they are planning to implement in six different work streams over the course of the next 24 months. So similarly, it could look super uninteresting while they're re-architecting everything. And then all of a sudden it pops and they don't want to rip you out. So you don't have to do you know, as much from like a competitive perspective for, say, the next three or five years. So that's sort of been the framework we're trying to get in, in place is you know, when I think about the 2022 revenue plan, how much of it should I be driving towards what's needed in year versus where we want to be by 2025? And then the other half of your question is we also, you know, you'll just look at the unit economics of, of each segment. Each segment tends to come with slightly different resources. So ratio of solution architects that you need, costs associated with that. And then as you become multi-product, you also have to think about upsellability of who you're landing today. And if I can land company A or company B, and today I might sell the exact same product to both, but two years from now, I can only sell two products to A and probably could sell five to B. I might want to lean more heavily to B. To go slightly deeper there, what is the balance of art and science to actually decide this is what we're going to try to do? And then here's what we have to do from an org design and staffing perspective ladder up to that goal or outcome? I would say, so if you're early at this in your company, I would call almost none of it art, (laughs) but the science I would say would be like hypothesis-driven science versus realized data that you can do something with and make decisions on. So let me give an example on that. So when Stripe started getting into enterprise, we basically back in 2018 signed a relatively meaningful deal with Amazon. And when that happened, I think a lot of us were like, they are a pretty demanding customer. If they're willing to work with us, probably other enterprises on the planet are too. And so, but we had no data. We literally signed them and maybe like three random other enterprises, but we said, we're going to go do this. And so we had a very hypothesis-driven approach where we sat down, we looked at the dynamics of the handful of deals that we'd run. We looked at where we were strong from a product perspective in the most quasi-similar type customers that were on Stripe. And we basically formed a point of view on types of companies we thought we could go win. And we formed a point of view on combination of how much revenue does an account executive need to bring in for you to think this was a good financial decision? And what did we think was feasible when you did funnel math, opportunities created, win rate, cycle time, average size? We basically built the initial plan, totally hypothesis. So one could call that art, but it was very (laughs) mathy. And that way, then, as we started hiring account executives towards that, you could say, oh, interesting. We're creating twice as many opportunities as we thought we would, but they're all half the size. Is that good or is that bad? What are you learning from that? After a year, we basically like backfilled our data and said, where are we on or off the trajectory we thought we'd be on? So... Going back to the like macro point today, we still haven't nailed it. I don't think there's like an obvious way to plan or to do this, 
But what we try to do is understand um, where the product is headed, where we're likely to have more things to sell over time, where we win most effectively today with good velocity and unit economics, and where you think if you poured more resources into doing that thing again, you'd get a similar output. So we'll see how we do. (laughs) So maybe to wrap up, if folks are going deeper in this area of implementing usage-based pricing, maybe how that clicks together with go-to-market, are there things you've read interviews you've read or companies that you've studied that you might point them in as a place to go deeper on this? Actually, like everything I've done has been mostly interview based. So just going out to other peers in the market. So, you know, when we were first doing things here, I think like Twilio was probably a year ahead of us. So I had talked to their CRO at the time to figure out what they were up to. If you look at your major infrastructure as a service players like a Microsoft, GCP, AWS, they've all gone through a lot of growing pains on this and have come out with similar and different approaches to how they think about forecasting targets, et cetera. So I feel like that's why I was so excited to do this session with you. I don't think there's a playbook out there that exists. My hope is that folks who are figuring out great things start to write those up and share them. Because as far as I'm aware, we're still in the early innings of figuring out what is best practice here. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for spending this time with us. This was awesome. Yeah, likewise. Really enjoyed it. (laughs) 